gave the message on, you know, the cost of discipleship and of um, really following hard after Jesus. And we've kind of actually had a series of messages that Jesus gives that are um, pretty hard in their content. You know, they're, they're pretty, pretty rough messages, um, you know, and, and can, um, you know, really hit the hearts of, of the hearers. Uh, this morning, um, you know, it, it may seem somewhat softer to you, and, and that would be great, but I would contend with you that depending on who you are, the message is either softer or harder. Um, it either hits you in a certain way or it doesn't. And so uh, there may be even different reactions to it um, in this room as we, we look at it. But um, I think we'll all agree um, about Luke chapter 15 that it's, that it's really, really good news. And so let's pray, and then we'll hop right into it. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us, God. We thank you for your great love for us. Um, We come to you in this time because our hearts um, desire to worship you, um, to give you the worth that you are due, God, Uh, from from hearts that that just want to know you and and know you more deeply and um, to be in communion with you, God. So we thank you that all that's possible because... um, you are searching for those who are lost, um, that you sent Jesus for us to pay for our sins, and that Jesus, you went to the cross and that you paid a debt that we couldn't pay, and that you um, had victory over sin and the death, and that um, the grave could not hold you, and that you will return as king, and that is our great and true hope. And so this morning, Lord, we worship you, uh, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. In your name, Jesus, we ask you these things. Amen. All right, so let's begin in Luke chapter 15. Um, This morning, I'm going to be using the New Living Translation, which I I don't use a ton when preaching, but I'm going to use it this morning. Uh, I think it's good for this passage. And so, you know, if you have your your phone app, if you're one of, you know, the kind that does that, um, you can look that up. um, But either way, you can follow along um, in the Word. So, Luke 15, verse 1, he says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So we need to stop right there because that's really crucial uh, for the context of the rest of what Jesus is going to say to us this morning um, through his words. And so you have the scene, um, and it's interesting, you know, tax collectors, again, those are people that are, um, usually these were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government. Um, they're viewed by those who are devout as being somewhat of traitors, you know, people who are profiting off of their own and who are, uh, you know, putting extra money, you know, in their own pockets and um, who are helping out the enemy, those who are occupying their land. And so, you know, they were, they were, you know, one group of bad people um, in the eyes of the religious leaders. And this other group of bad people would be, you know, the notorious sinners. Those who aren't um, even interested at this point in hiding their sin. Their sin is just out in the open. Everybody knows, you know, who they are and the sorts of things that they do. And they have a, a reputation. Um, and, you know, they, so that's another group that the religious leaders looked at as, you know, those are quote unquote bad people. And so they would complain because these people would come to Jesus. Now, it's interesting that those people would go and listen to Jesus, whereas they wouldn't go and listen to the, you know, religious leaders. Why is that? Well, they knew how the religious leaders looked at them, how they looked down at them, and that they were, they were judged and they were condemned from the get-go. They also knew what the religious leaders were just going to say to them. And in general, it was going to be, you know, for, for most of the religious leaders at this time, they would have given a message of condemnation, and, but without hope. It would, it would have the message of judgment, but not much else to it. So why go and listen to that? 
if you are in one of these two categories of being a tax collector or a notorious sinner. But Jesus is different. You know, there's some appeal because he is, you know, he's doing these miracles and what might he do when he is teaching? Who might he heal? And there's just kind of a natural attraction to kind of see, you know, that sort of thing. But there's also, there's an understanding that there's something different in his message. Now, we need to be really clear, as we've already seen, that Jesus in his message, he is not soft in his speech. It's not that he is unwilling to tell the truth or that he is unwilling to tell the hard truth. He certainly is. But they see in him that he is um, compassionate to those who know they don't meet the standard. And he points out to people who think they meet the standard that they, in fact, do not. We need to understand that at this point, most of the Pharisees and other religious leaders are not walking with God and are on their way to an eternity with God. They may have thought so, but the reality is that they were headed for their own perilous destruction. That's the reality. And that's you know, such a dangerous place to be. And in fact, it's a little bit more dangerous of a place to be than that of the notorious sinners. So notorious sinners, if you ask them, what's going to happen to you when you die? They would say, you know, I'm probably going to go to hell. But if you ask these religious ones, they said, well, of course, I'm going to be with Abraham and with Moses. And I'm going to be in the presence of God. And that was their assumption. And that was a very dangerous assumption. A very dangerous assumption. And so now Jesus is going to tell three stories to to really try to give them a message. And, you know, we need to understand that that part of this message is for all, but part of this message is, is really pointed at these people who thought that they were better than and that they were already, that they already had it, that they already had everything they needed. And so it says in verse 3, Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he is founded, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So again, we have, we get, we're, and we're getting in all of this, a picture of the heart of God in this story. And so he gives the illustration about a, you know, a shepherd. And, and you know, this u- is used in the, the scriptures a good bit. You think about um, you know, Psalm 23, about the good shepherd. And you think about uh, Jesus talk, saying that he is you know, the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. And so, you know, here we have another illustration of this, of, you know, the, the man, the shepherd may have a hundred sheep, but if one goes away, he doesn't just say, well, I've got 99 others, it's not that big of a deal. No, he goes and is proactive and is searching for that lost one. He is proactive. And that's one thing we need to learn about our father, that he is he is proactive. You know, he is one who is seeking and searching for those who are lost. He is the one who sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to the cross for our sins. He is the one who sends his Holy Spirit to convict the world of, of sin and of judgment. Why? So that, you know, what does it say here? There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. And, you know, my personal take on it in verse 7 is is there's a little tongue-in-cheek at the end because the Scripture tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You know, and, and yet a person cannot, you know, turn to God unless they first realize that they are actually turned away from God to begin with. So I think that's really the heart of what Jesus is getting at here as he speaks to these religious, you know, leaders that they didn't view themselves as being lost and if you don't and if, and therefore they were not capable of repenting. Now that word repenting 
Um, we just need to, make, you know, it's just a very easy for, definition for that is you know, to turn. You know, that's, that's basically just what it means, to be headed one direction and to turn and to go a, a different direction. And in the context, you know, when we're talking about, you know, these spiritual things, repentance has to do with, you know, turning from your false beliefs, turning to your, you know, your faith from faith in yourself or in a false god or a false idol, um, and turning from your sins. So it's like turning from false belief and turning from sins to turning to God. <laughs> In faith, and of the you know, and asking for forgiveness. That's really what um, how we can summarize the scriptural idea of repentance. And even when the word is not used, for example, in the Gospel of John, you really don't find that word hardly at all. Yet it's it, you know, John writes so that people would you know believe in Jesus and have life in His name. It says in John chapter twenty. Uh, but you you might not have the exact word there, but you have the concept played out time and time again. Um, and so that's important for us to remember that, you know, regardless of, of whether it's explicit or implicit, that repentance actually happens in the life of a person in order to go from being away from God to being with God. It's a necessity. It's a necessity. And that requires a certain amount of humility and the, but the scripture says, you know, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's the whole problem here with the Pharisees, is that at their core, they are prideful people. They have this, the sin of pride is what fills them. That's their core problem, their core issue. And so they need humility. So let's move on to verse 8, to the next story he says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels whenever one sinner repents. So here, you know, this woman, she has ten silver coins. She loses one. Well, you know, we, our coins aren't very valuable. You know, these are more valuable coins. But there's the idea she loses 10% of what she has. And she's going to search for that. She's going to search for that one coin until she finds it. And she's going to, you know, so she's there sweeping her house until she finds it. Um, you know, and it's, and it's interesting here because, you know, we have the idea, you know, you would, you would sweep your house until you found the coin. I mean, you know, you got a hardwood. Wouldn't you just look at the hardwood? Or, you know, you got carpet. I mean, you could, I guess, like vacuum until you hear the clang, 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 clang and get it up in there. But obviously, it didn't have, you know, this sort of thing. And also, you know, many houses, um, as it's still in the world today, have more of a, you know, a dirt floor. And, you know, something gets into the dirt and kind of gets covered up. Um, it can get lost permanently without that much difficulty. And so there she's there sweeping back, you know, and trying to find that coin. You know, find that coin. And she does. And it says she's excited about that. She calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels whenever, whenever one sinner repents. There's just a couple things I want to note, notice here. Um, we have both in the first story and the second story this idea of gathering others to rejoice with you. You know, there's a, there's a collective rejoicing when something is lost and, and now it's found. And certainly that should be you know, our perspective. If we are followers of Jesus and we know him, whenever someone does turn from their sins or turns from their false beliefs and turns to believe in Jesus, you know, that's, a call, that's a cause for rejoicing. That's, you know, we should be like you know, throwing parties. If anything to throw a party for, you throw a party for that. Because that's what happens in heaven. The angels... There's joy in the presence of God's angels. In the first illustration, you know, it's more general. There's joy in all of heaven. And here, the joy in the presence of God's angels whenever one sinner repents. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And we should think this way. And, you know, I would just say that there's, there's certainly something wrong with our spiritual health. If we hear about someone, you know, turning 
to God and we don't have joy in our hearts and we don't want to you know, celebrate and throw a party, then, then that means there's something off. You know, there's something that's, that's, that's not you know, right. Is, you know, taking that spiritual temperature, it's like, man, you, well, you know, this person's temperature is so low, they're about to die. You know, I mean, that's what you would think in this sort of situation. There should be life and a celebration of life. Verse 11, we'll go to the last one. And this one takes a little bit more of Jesus' attention. He says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons, and the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. And he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him but no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. All right, now let's, Stop there for a minute and just unpack a few things. So you have the beginning of the story. You know, there's a father who has wealth. He has an estate. He has two sons. And the younger one, you know, he's, he doesn't want to be patient. He doesn't want to wait, you know, for the proper time, to, you know, to receive. He just says, you know, to his father, I, I want it now. Man, if that's not a call for our world and our generation and for us, even myself, on many occasions, it's like, well, do I, do I want it? Yes. Do I want to wait for it for the future? No, I want it now. You know, and, and many times, that's just a lesson for life, you know, right in that short thing right there. Many times, it's not that you, what you want is wrong. It's that you don't want to be patient and wait for the right timing for that good thing. And that good thing then actually causes damage because it's not received in the proper time. It's received before you're actually ready for it or before you've actually earned it. And then, therefore, problems come. And so this young guy, you know, you think about his mindset. I don't want to have to wait. I want it now. And so he gets it. Now when he has it, now, you, you know, you get the wheels turning of what he can you know, what he can do with what he has. And so he's like, you know, I'm going to take a trip. I've got the resources to do it. And so he does. He goes to a distant land and says, and, and you know, obviously tr- nothing wrong with travel, but, you know, you, there's something in his motivations here throughout that we can see, it, you know, it's just not right. And so what does he do when he gets there? It says he wasted all his money on wild living. And so you can imagine, you know, well, don't imagine, I guess, you know, what that is. But, you know, he's, he's out just, you know, money is just flowing like water. You know, it is just, it's, it's gone, right? It is gone. And at the same time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over his land and he began to starve. Now, you think all the beers that he bought, you know, for other people did him any good when that famine hit? And he didn't have any money. You know, he probably actually thought he had some friends in that distant land. You know, people that he partied with. But then when the hard time came, he realized he didn't really have any real friends at all. He had nothing. He is destitute. And, you know, his timing is just is bad here. His timing is bad. He runs out of money at the same time a famine hits the land. That's not a good combination. And it says, he began to starve. He persuades the local fire to hire him, and the man sent him into the field, field, fields to feed the pigs. Now, you know, we might read that today and just be like, okay, that's not that big of a deal. 
But you have to remember, this is a Jewish young man who is now forced to defile himself. You know, he's already defiled himself by his, you know, many of his actions that he has already taken. <clears throat> but now he defiles himself in another religious sense. And so it's like every bit of dignity that he had is taken away. You know, every, every, any last thing that he could hold on to in his identity of, you know, I'm still an okay person at this point is, I mean, it's gone. It is stripped from him, especially when he is reduced to defiling himself by feeding the pigs. But you talk about a desperate situation, even, you know, the pigs are just getting this just junk that's not much of anything because they'll eat basically anything left over. And even that looks good to him. He's thinking even these pigs have it better than he does. And that's, again, for a young Jewish man, it doesn't get really worse than this. But notice verse 17, it says he came to his senses. You know, he really, you know, he hits rock bottom. And it's unfortunate, but many people, you know, do have to hit rock bottom before they come to their senses. And a lot of times, rock bottom can be much further down than is rational. You know, because, I mean, when you, when you go back and you think about it, when he, when he first ran out of money... He could have come to his senses and thought about, you know, well, he could go back and be a servant in his father's house. You know, when he sees that there's trouble in the land, he could have then gone, things are growing poor here even more so. I need to go back, you know, home. I mean, there's multiple steps along the way that a lot of us would want to call. Hey, I think that's rock bottom. I think you've hit it. And he's like, not yet. You know, he's diving down deeper. Diving down deeper. And so when he's there, when he's at his rock bottom, because he finally came to his senses, and he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. That's powerful. Because, you know, in this physical sense, he still does have that identity. You know, there's a biological truth that he is his father's son. Like, that's just a biological reality. It is, it is a fact, but even that fact, can, he cannot overcome in his mind how far he has actually fallen. And he says, you know, he, he's, he hum, you, know you see that humbling it's like he's been humbled, and now he humbles himself. See, being humbled isn't enough. Being humbled is not in itself sufficient for change. Because life can just humble somebody. But there has to be a humble reaction. You know, he could have shaken his fist at the heavens and just died in that distant land. But he has to respond to how he has been humbled by humbling his own heart, by humbling himself and saying, I'm not worthy, having that mindset toward his father, that I'm not worthy to be called your son, take me on as a hired servant. Man, and certainly those of us who know God, I mean, that has to be our attitude. You know, it's interesting, when God saves us, he actually makes us, you know, he adopts us as his sons, you know, not in the gender sense, but in, you know, in the adoptive sense of, you know, we are, you could say it this way, we are sons and daughters of God. He adopts us as his own because we are identified with his ultimate son, Jesus Christ. How can we even fathom that? Because if we're honest, there's not a person on the planet certainly not any of us in this room today, that deserve to be you know, a child of God. 
but think, I mean, we, you know, if we're honest, it's like, Lord, just, you know, if you, if you let us into your kingdom, if you let us into your heaven, if you let us into your presence, and just stick us off, you know, in the, in the corner, you know, and, and you don't really have to pay us much attention because we're, we're not worthy of it. That would be just fine, Lord. Like, we don't, I mean, we don't deserve to be in. We don't deserve certainly anything special. And yet the scripture tells us that he makes us kings and priests to our God. That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous grace. It is ridiculous favor. I mean, it is, it is so above and beyond any blessing that we could possibly fathom on our own. I mean, if we're writing a story and we're going to write an honest story, that's not the conclusion of it, that we get that sort of place with him. Now, obviously, Jesus is, again, you know, we do need to be clear in this. We have our place, but neither here and now or then in eternity is it about you or me. We are participants, and we get to be participants, but ultimately, all the glory is for the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. So I don't want, us, I, I don't want you to take this and mis, you know, write this in an you know, American individualistic, you know, well, hey, now not only my life is about me, but also eternity is about me, you know, sort of, you know, seeing through that sort of theological lens that, you know, is, is terribly destructive. I don't, want you to do, I don't want you to go that far. You can't go that far. But I do want us to see that God makes us his children. He makes us kings and priests. And he, he does give us so much more than we deserve in Jesus and in eternity that it's just, it really is amazing. But again, the, the central character of it all is God himself. You know, he's, yeah. All right. Now that we have that, let's have the trip back to verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both you and heaven, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Here there's two things to notice. One is that you, know, you can see that the father is, is probably often out looking into the distance, wondering if today is the day that his son will return. You know, there's an expecting, you know, expectation there. There's a hope that is there that one day his son is going to come back. And he says, well, he's still a long way off. His father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. You know, he doesn't just sit up on his porch and, and wait till his, you know, gaunt, half-starved son, you know, struggles, you know, up the hill to finally make it there. But he runs out after him, that he's filled with love and compassion. And, and, and his son at this point, based on the life that he's lived till now, to this journey that he's taken, is probably, I mean, there's probably just a stench, you know, about him. Um, you know, it's like Pigpen from the Snoopy cartoon or what? I mean, the Charlie Brown, right? I mean, it, there is probably something just emanating from this young man. But that doesn't stop his father. Why? His father is so full of love and compassion for him that he embraces him and he kisses him. He's not concerned about the dirt and the grom and the mess. And that son, you know, he follows through with what he, his mindset was with that humility. You see that his, his humbleness was true because he says to his father, I have sinned both, against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. You know, he just didn't think about it. 
you know, and think about doing the right thing. He actually did it. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. <laughs> it's just amazing. Put the finest robe in the house on him. It's like he hadn't even gotten, you know, bathed and cleaned up yet. And put this on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. And we must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. And he was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. I want you to think about that for a minute. About what he says about the son. He says, the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. Now, Nobody got raised from the dead here. What does he, you know, what does he mean by that? You know, it, it, and really what we see in the, in the scriptures um, so much of the time, especially in a spiritual sense, you know, death has to do with separation. It doesn't have to do with the cessation of existing. It has to do with separation. You know, when physical death is when your spirit is separated from your body. That's why the physical body doesn't have life, but there's still a spirit that does have life. But it's still referred to as death. Why? Because there's a separation that has occurred between the material and the immaterial, between the physical body and the spirit. But now with God, because of sin, the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? It means you know, it's, it's, it's the wages of sin is separation from God. Back, you can look at that even all the way back to the to the garden, when God tells Adam the day he took, if he took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day he ate it, he would surely die. Yet he physically lived on and on, right? It's that, but it's that there was a separation that came into play between, you know, Adam, the, the creature, the human being, and the one who had made him in his image. There came a separation between Adam and Eve and God. But now that separation has been done away with. The son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And these are true words. And then notice the next part. So the party began. Like there's a celebration. There's a party now to be had. So they take this calf. They've been, you know, giving it some extra extra food to eat. We're getting it ready because they're going to have a big feast. And so they have this. They're having this party. And then verse 25 it says, "Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on." Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and we are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Let's stop there for a moment and talk about this older son. This older son who had been faithful, this older son who had continued to work you know, for his father. And, you, know, you can understand his, the mindset that he has, but we have to acknowledge it's not a correct mindset. You know, he, he has this mindset that, you know, he, he deserves everything. He's a, you know, when he comes right down to it, he's a, he's a bit entitled. You know, because he kind of knows how the system works and that he's, quote-unquote, played by the rules, and then therefore he deserves, you know, this certain benefit. Well, what if his father had decided, even before giving any money to his sons, to have given, you know, 90% of it away to the poor and left 10% for his sons to divide, would that have been wrong? No, it wouldn't. His sons, you know, they're able-bodied men. You know, they could work. They could, you know, build their own, you know, wealth. He, I mean, he, he, just, he just took it for granted that this is what 
he should get. And and he had this, you know, now he's got this conflict because, you know, he's got his entitlement. And now he's got this conflict because he sees, you know, his younger brother not play by the rules and then get blessed. And so he's just kind of ticked off and he's got this bitterness going on, you know, because he's got this combination of pride and bitterness. And that's a really bad combination. If you have pride and bitterness, you can't really have joy. If you have pride and bitterness, you can't really have joy. And so he looks at this younger son. You know, he's got this disdain for his younger brother. And he's also greatly misunderstood his own father. Because you can see it is that he, he... you know, he views it as, you never gave me one young goat for a feast for my friends. But the reality is, he never asked for it. He never asked for it. Because look at the response the father gives in verse 31. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. But notice this, when he says, everything I have is yours. You know, he had access to it all the whole time. It really wasn't his father's fault that he wasn't enjoying life. That he he was walking through life as, you know, duty and just doing his duty. It It wasn't his father's fault that he didn't take time, you know, here and there to just to celebrate. Everything I have is yours. Now, the interesting thing in relation to the Pharisees is, you know, they had everything they needed. They had, you know, the full word of God. They had, you know, every opportunity to see the heart and character of God as they, you know, read and studied, you know, the scriptures. And yet they missed it. And because of that, they not only were going to miss out on the joy that was available to him, they were going to miss out ultimately on life itself. Because in their disdain for those who were, you know, obvious, quote-unquote, notorious sinners coming to Jesus and finding life, because we see that throughout the Gospels, you know, of, you know, tax collectors and sinners having true repentance and being found and, and then enjoying their place in, you know, God's family, that now they become, you know, they got their pride, then they become bitter about that, and they're going to lose out not just on joy, but on life itself. And they're going to lose out on eternal life. Because what we need to understand in this is that Jesus cared about the Pharisees too. Yes, he had harsh words for them because he's got to try to break down that pride and he's got to, you know, they've got to be able to see that they need him too. And he also speaks harshly against them because they're leading other people astray. And God doesn't have much tolerance for that. And so there is is that truth, that reality that, you know, many of his words were hard toward them. But even in these, you know, parables that Jesus is giving, even these stories Jesus is telling, there's an opportunity for the Pharisees to repent, just as there's an opportunity for the notorious you know, sinners and tax collectors to repent. There's an opportunity for them all. But now the question for us is, man, back to that celebration, you know, we got to celebrate, you know, the happy days. We got to celebrate when what was lost is, is found, what was dead, what was separated, you know, now has been given life. You know, we know that ultimately is through faith in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that a person, you know, has to get to a point where they, you know, they humble themselves before God and say, you know, I can't do this on my own. I, I can't pay for my sins. I've got a debt that I can't pay, and there's no way out. You know, you have to be in that position of that, you know, lost son, you know, in the foreign land who has nothing, and there's a famine, and it's, it's desperation. It's like, I can't make it. I've got to have Jesus. 
you know, that, that's what a person today has to understand in their own heart. That that's where you are. And, that, and, and, you know, you might say, well, you know, I haven't gone like this dude has. Well, the scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, and, and, and you have to take out of your mindset that in comparison to other people, well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, in comparison to God, you are fallen. You are, you are not anywhere close because in, even in the best human heart, in the flesh, apart from God, you will find you know, pride and envy and strife and just sin after sin after sin. Even in the person where you say, that's a really good person. All of that is still there. Seen fully by God and not able to be hidden by putting on you know, nicer clothes or by you know, giving a smile and you know, being friendly with other people. God still sees all the hidden, dark crevices of the human heart. And so there has to be that believing in Jesus, that repenting and saying, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. That's got, it doesn't have to be those exact words, but it's, that's got to be the heart of it. There's got to be faith in Jesus that he was sufficient, that he paid the debt that we had at the cross. And so that's the question, are you this morning, are you a, a lost sheep or a lost coin or a, you know, a, a lost person, a lost son or daughter who needs salvation? So that's one question. If you are, even this morning, Jesus offers you life and life eternal, and it's right there for you to take. It's a gift. You can't earn it, but you can receive it. And you just have to say, yes, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, and I take that gift of life and eternal life that you give. And what we see about the Father in this is he's more than happy to give you that life and then to throw a party about it. That, that's what he's happy to do. That's what he's happy to do. But then the other question is, are you the older brother? Are you the older brother that thinks, man, you know, I play by the rules and it doesn't always go my way and you've got a little bit of entitlement and you've got a little bit of bitterness and maybe you need life too. Maybe you're just as lost, just in a different way. There's been a lot of people like that, trying to be like the Pharisees and make it on your own righteousness. Make it on your own good works. It can't be done. It can't be done. But, you know, this isn't necessarily an either-or because perhaps you have been one of those. You probably were one of those in your past. And then you came to Jesus you know, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you've already put your faith in him. There's something else here for us, and that's to understand that the legalist and the obvious sinner are both in bondage and need freedom. And that we need, you know, should have compassion on both. I would say, though, before we get you know, too far into that, that even after coming to know Jesus, there's still a tendency... To not necessarily be full-blown like the lost son, but sometimes, but just to, you know, I want everything, even things that I shouldn't have now, and kind of waste parts of your life on what, you know, if you had the New King James or one of the other versions, it might say prodigal living, but just to kind of waste part of your life on just doing what you want to do and um, not taking Jesus seriously enough. But even in the church, I mean, and that happens even in the church and, you know, people who really do know Jesus. And then on the other side of it, there are, you know, people in the church and who really do know Jesus who can have that bend, that bent toward legalism. It can still be a problem. Just because, you know, just when the, you know, if the older brother gets, you know, gets saved, comes to God truly and, you know, he's repentant and everything, that doesn't mean that he's never going to have another legalistic tendency in his life. He probably will have to, to battle with that and fight in his own heart about that as he goes on. 
There's going to be times where he's got to go, wait, stop. I'm being a little bit legalistic about that. That's not actually God's heart. That's just a, you know, a rule that some man made up. And that was really the problem for the Pharisees. It, was, it wasn't about what God had said. It was you know, the, their human traditions were the biggest problem that they had. They valued their human traditions as holy when God cared much more about their heart. And so where is your heart this morning? But if you're free from both of those, you need to see that whether you know, a person doesn't have Jesus yet, I mean, obviously those people need to be freed from legalism and freed from you know, just blatant sin. Both are in bondage. But even people today, even in this room, can be, you know, can be in bondage or can go back into bondage in terms of like, Put yourself back under the law again, or um, go from freedom to license. You know, we stand in the place of freedom, and on one side you have legalism, and then that is bondage. And on the other side of that you have license, a quote-unquote license to sin, and in that you also have bondage. The only place you don't have because both of those are sin, and both of those are bondage, and the only place that you don't have that is freedom in Christ and living in the truth. You know, that initially happens when you believe in Jesus, but, you know, the Scripture says you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's an assumption there that you want to know the truth, and that you want to know the truth about everything in your life, not just some things in your life. You know, and that's the problem that we've seen with, you know, with so many. It's like, you know, people want to have, you know, okay, I have God, but I still want to live in, you know, a little bit of my own truth. And so when it comes to money, I've got my truth about money as opposed to God's truth about money. You know, I still want to live in my own truth about sex and not God's truth about sex. I still want to live in my own truth about, you know, ethnicities and prejudice and xenophobia but I don't want to live in God's truth about that because that's just a little bit scary. You see what I'm saying? So it's still in, in all areas of life, we have to come back and go, what does the Bible say? What does God say? How does Jesus want me to live in each, in each thing that we, that we care about that? so that we don't end up living in one sort of bondage or another sort of bondage. But live where the freedom is, live where the freedom in Jesus is. And when you're there with Jesus, you're in freedom. And let's just say this at the end. If there's not a righteous party where you are at, you might not be in the right place. In your heart. See what I'm saying? If there's not a righteous party there, then we might not be in the right place. Is that you know, we're gonna have some joy. It doesn't mean that we're not gonna, you know, look at the, you know all the sin in our world and there are gonna be times when we weep, but we're gonna take some time to rejoice about the good stuff that is happening and the good stuff that God is doing. And when someone passes from death to life, we're gonna celebrate that. You know, and, you know, today, um, you know, obviously we're just going straight through the book of Luke. You know, today is known as, you know, Palm Sunday. People, you know, laid their palm branches out, you know, before Jesus. And there was, you know, some celebration. Now, that celebration quickly turned to a crucifixion. We need to remember that as we, you know, consider the cost of following Jesus and the cost that Jesus paid for us. But in that this morning, let's take a little bit of time to celebrate the fact that we, you know, many of us were lost and now we're found, and that God is still searching and seeking those who are lost, and he is a saving God. As we take the bread and the cup this morning, we can give thanks that we worship a God who saves. We worship a God who saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you now. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. 
um, to us. We're thankful that, Jesus, we're thankful that you told these stories and that we can learn from them, that we can see the heart of your Father to celebrate when what was lost is found. We see the heart of the Father as we see the one who looks and seeks and is waiting uh, for people to turn and return to him. We're thankful that there there are parties in heaven every day because people are going from death to life every day on this planet. Lord, we give you thanks. We also understand there was a great cost for those parties to happen, that it wasn't uh, just a you know, fattened calf that was, was slain for that party to be able to happen, Lord, but that the Lamb of God was slain, that Jesus, you were slain for our sin. You paid the debt that we couldn't pay. And Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you that as we take that bread and we take that cup, we can remember your death and resurrection until you return. And so help us to take that soberly and to examine our hearts and to confess our sins and to ask you to free us wherever we are in bondage. And Lord, that being free people, we would share freedom. We would seek to share with others the goodness of your gospel that those who repent can have life in your name. Lord, that people would put their trust fully in you, Jesus, and and, in nothing else. We thank you that you love us and that your, your love for us is bigger than all the things we